Has everybody had a good weekend so far? Good. Um, I've actually had a pretty good weekend. I got some rest this weekend. Um, the Braves pitching didn't blow the game last night, so that was good. That's a rare treat right there. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to be here this morning. We've been in our series, Kingdom. And um, last Sunday, Kenny was talking about Job, the suffering that Job had to endure, and kind of how he dealt with it, and kind of how him and God talked back and forth with each other. And it's really cool that Kenny talked about that, and that was, that was Kenny's message, because um, he didn't know what I was going to preach on today before last Sunday. I didn't know he was, what he was going to talk about, but they kind of correlate in a way. Um, God works like that sometimes, and it doesn't, this message doesn't fit into the kingdom series, um, but if you remember before that, we did He Cares for Us, and I guess it more closely fits in with that, um, so if you like names and all that kind of stuff on your sermons, you can just put that with, with that message or that series. Um, the story of Job is suffering and later redemption and God's sovereignty over all of it. And suffering is unfortunately a natural part of life. And what I mean by that is when God created Adam and Eve and they were in the garden, before sin was with us, suffering was not here. Suffering was not a part of life. But when Adam and Eve sinned, sin became our nature. That is what we naturally do. When we wake up in the morning, our default tendency is to sin. And that's the way the world works, too. And so because of that, suffering is now natural. And so we will all face suffering. Many of us already have. Those of you that haven't, at some point you will. That's not to scare anybody. That's just to say that's the way it is. That's life. And we need to know how to deal with it. But one thing I don't know if we talk about enough is not necessarily how to deal with our suffering, but how to deal with the suffering of people that are close to us. How do we, as someone that is important to them, maybe it's a family member, a coworker, a church family member, a close friend, how, how do we approach that situation? What do we do? And this is, this is a topic that, honestly, you could dive into Scripture and you could spend months and years trying to figure out the perfect way to do it, but we have 25, 30 minutes, so... I'm going to kind of give you what I can in 25 or 30 minutes, okay? But there's a wrong approach and there's a right approach. And as a universal church, as a body of believers, I think unfortunately a lot of times we take the wrong approach. Because what we love to do, myself included, is we love to talk to people or to preach to people in their suffering. And we have these phrases that we use, right? And they all sound good. Well, some of them sound good. But my personal favorite, here's mine. God will never give you more than you can handle. Right? Because that's awesome and really truthful. And a lot of people, they'll put 1 Corinthians 10, 13 with that. But number one, like I said, that's not the truth. And that's not what that verse says. You can read it. It won't be on the screen, but you can read it on your own. That's not what that says. But then we find... Other phrases that we use that are truthful, and they sound great. You know, find joy in suffering. And we have verses in James we use for that one, or Romans or Hebrews or whatever. We have God has a plan, Jeremiah 29, 11. 
you know, joy is coming in the morning. I know you're hurting now, but joy is coming, Psalm 30. And those are all true. And they're great things to know, and they're things we should know in our suffering because they're things we should be telling ourselves. But when we're talking to someone else, I really don't think that works. I just don't. Because, and we'll see this in just a second, what we might intend for motivation or encouragement, it really just sounds like we're preaching at somebody. It's kind of like throwing salt on the wound a little bit. And so we'll see in Job, remember, Satan goes to God because God is in control of everything. Satan can do nothing without, without God's approval, outside of God's approval. And Satan goes to God and says, look, there's this guy, Job. I know he's a great guy, but that's because you've given him everything he wants. He's healthy. He's wealthy. He has all these children. And, you know, so he says, let me do something to him, and I'll prove to you that he's only faithful to you because you've given him all these things. So God says, okay, do what you want. Just don't touch his health. Don't hurt him in any way. So Satan goes off, and then pretty much an instant he loses his children and his property and everything he owns, anything that in that day accounted to wealth or prosperity is gone. But he doesn't curse God. He doesn't turn from God. So Satan goes back and Satan says, okay, you're right, he didn't do it, but that's just because you didn't hurt him. That's just because his health is still okay. So what about that? And God says, okay, you can, you can do something to his health, you just can't kill him. So Job comes down and he has these boils, these, these spots all over his body and they itch and they hurt and they bleed. And at one point I think it says he's, he's scraping at them with like broken pottery or, or broken um, just different things, just trying to get some type of relief. And in chapter 3, he says many things, but in chapter 3, this is just one of the things that he says and and we're going to read it starting in verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. So I use those verses as an example to show you how Job feels. Okay? He's a little downcast right now. That's, that's a good way to put it. He's not feeling great, and it's really understandable why. And he says... Essentially, that he wishes he was never born. He's, he says, why am I even here? If this, if this is what's going to happen to me, what is the point of me even being here? But I want us to notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't curse God. He doesn't look at God and say, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're God. If you were God, you wouldn't let this happen to me. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't question that God has a plan. Throughout the book, he acknowledges several times that he knows God is still in control. 
God is still sovereign over his problems, his joys, his sorrows, everything that happens. But what he says is, you have a plan, I don't see it, and I don't understand it, though. He doesn't sin here, okay? He just says, I don't get it. He's being honest with God. He's telling God how he feels because God cares. God really does care. And he's being honest. And, and he's just crying out to him, Why, what is the plan for this? What could possibly be the purpose? But I want you to look at what one of his friends says to him. And it's, it's interesting. So he has the three, the three friends. Kenny talked about them last week. And in ways, they can be good friends, but they're mostly idiots. Okay? Let's, they're not good friends. And he has this one called Eliphaz. Okay? And Eliphaz, in chapter 5, starts saying to him, verse 17, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. We've heard this one, right? If you're suffering, that means you're blessed, man. Thank you. That makes me feel better. I appreciate it. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beast of the earth. You shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out, it is true. Hear and know it for your good. So he kind of, in a way, he kind of calls out Job, and he's like, hold up, you don't need to be saying all those things, right? You don't need to be talking to God like that. Of course God has a plan for you. Of course God's working out everything for your good, and he'll redeem you. And he tells him all this stuff, and it's a, it's a pretty motivational speech. I mean, this is good stuff right here. This is, this is really good. But I love Job's response, because Job is at the point, I think we've all been there, Job is at the point where he just doesn't care. He's done with everything. He's like... He's ready to tell somebody off. And he starts, this won't be on the screen, but I'm just going to read three verses. In chapter 6, verse 24, he says, Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? So he's sitting there and Eliphaz tells him this thing and he looks up at him and he's like, what was, the, what was the purpose of that? What did you think was really going to happen by telling me that? I know God has a plan. I understand. You know by my life. You're my friend. You've been around me. I know God has a plan. But what did you honestly think was going to come? What positive reaction was going to happen from you saying what you just said? He says, how forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? He's saying what I said earlier. He's just throwing salt on the wound. He's not helping him. He's making it worse. Job knows all of the things that he said. He knows God is faithful. Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? That's really important because when we hurt, 
We say things we shouldn't sometimes. We think things that we shouldn't. We've been shown again and again and again how God is faithful, but sometimes we don't necessarily feel it. But what that says, the speech of a despairing man is wind, what he's saying is pretty much when he moves on with his life, when things maybe start getting a little better and he's thinking a little more clear, he's going to look back at that moment and he's going to go, oh God, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have said that, please forgive me. And you know what? God will, and God's not going to strike him dead. So when we're faced with a friend, someone we're close to who maybe does that, we shouldn't strike him dead either. Sin is sin. Wrong is wrong. I'm not saying God lets that go. But he understands that we can't see the big picture. He knows. He's faithful. He'll forgive us. So why do we jump on top of people for saying things they shouldn't when they're hurting when God doesn't even do that? That's the wrong approach. We tend to, to try to make sure they stay in line. And we try, to, we try to encourage, motivate, whatever you want to call it. But really all it is, it's like another dagger. It's just, it's just pushing further and further in there. But I want us to look at the right approach. And we're going to go to John 11. And so in John 11, what we see is that Jesus' friend Lazarus has just died. And his sisters, Martha and Mary, are there. And we, we know Martha and Mary. They're in Scripture a couple of times. But they're in actually the next chapter, chapter 12. And remember, Mary, she washes, she washes Jesus' feet with her hair. So this Martha and Mary. And Lazarus has just died. And... Martha and Jesus had just had a conversation, and they're talking, and it starts in verse 28. When she had said this, talking about Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, oh, we need to be clear. The Jews who were weeping with her, who were consoling her, they're not really there because they care. It's kind of, they want people to see that they're there with them. They're the fake friends. They're the people who are really just making things more difficult. Okay, they're not real friends here. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So right here, there's a correlation between what Job is saying and what Mary says. Mary does not question that God is God. She does not question his sovereignty. The first word she says is, Lord, if you had been here. She still openly, verbally recognizes she knows he is the Christ, he is the Savior. And she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knows if Jesus was there, Lazarus would still be alive, so she knows his power. She is not even, I mean, use the context... When she talks here, she's not even upset about the fact that Lazarus is dead. 
She's upset about the fact that Jesus wasn't there earlier because then Lazarus wouldn't be dead. She believes in God's power. She's not questioning Jesus. But what she is saying is, I don't understand. Why weren't you here sooner? I wish you would have been here sooner. I love my brother. I want him here. It's the same approach Job took. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, that's everybody's favorite Bible verse. If you go into a Sunday school room and you ask the kids, what's your favorite, what's your favorite Bible verse? There's always going to be that one kid sitting in the corner with a smirk on his face, Jesus wept. You know, because that's, that's the cool one. I used to have a math teacher that if we put a Bible verse on a, the back of our math test with a reference, she would give us one bonus point on our test because that made a really big difference. And we could get as many as five bonus points, and that everybody went to that one. Because even the kids who didn't know anything knew that one. Jesus wept. Put it on there. All right? But that's very important. That's a very important verse because I want us to see what it says and the context of it. That's verse 35 where it says Jesus wept. Eight verses later, in verse 43, it says, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. He raises Lazarus from the dead eight verses later, just a few moments later. And he's at his tomb right now. They, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. He's at the tomb. He knows, he knows he's about to raise him from the dead. And the first thing he does is stop and weep with Martha and Mary. That's an unbelievably powerful picture. Because, and think about it, if there was ever anyone who could say anything to make somebody feel better, it was Jesus. Jesus could have looked at them and said, hey, stop hurting. And they would have been like, oh man, we're not sad anymore. That's great. I know that kind of sounds funny, but he could have done that. He has the power to do that. And he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he stops. He pays attention to them, and he doesn't say anything. He just mourns with them. Why is that important? Well, for one, as we said earlier, because God doesn't minimize the way that we feel. I'm not saying we should always make decisions based on feelings. And yes, feelings can lead you astray, but God understands that too. He understands that we can't make ourselves feel one particular way or another. He gets it. He's faithful to us, and when we hurt, he hurts with us. We're not alone. And that's the whole point. That's the gospel. The gospel, the gospel is not picking someone up and lifting them back up to where you are or fixing their problems. The gospel is going to where they are. That's what he did. And when we try to look for words to fix the problem, we fail. We actually make it worse. Because look, what do you say to the single mother trying to raise two kids because her husband decided he just didn't want to deal with it anymore? 
what do you say to the little boy who loves his father? He waits for his father to come home from work every day. They go and play catch and, you know, they go eat together and they do all these things. And his father gets cancer and he has to watch his dad lay in a bed and waste away and die. What do you say? What do you say to the new married couple? Maybe they haven't even been married a year. And now they've got a baby on the way and they're so excited and they're planning baby showers and they're picking out rooms and they're picking out names and they're buying cribs and strollers and all this stuff. And they go in for a routine checkup and find out there's not a baby coming anymore. What do you say? What, what can you possibly say that's going to fix that? And, and by the way, these are not all hypothetical situations. I use these because I know people who have dealt with each one of these situations. And I know you know people who have dealt with these situations are even worse. And, you know, if you're like me, if you teach or you work with kids, maybe you don't deal with situations like that. Maybe the situation you deal is you have a kid who comes to school every day. He hasn't eaten. He's not clean. He doesn't really do well in class. And then he goes home to a family that's supposed to be a family, but it's not because his parents are off focused on other things, whether it be drugs or sometimes it's just work they're so caught up in their work they don't have time for their kids what do you say to that kid if you have something to say to that kid let me know because I've been there and I've tried and it really it was hard because I wanted to fix it and I couldn't there was nothing I could say and you can say I'm sorry but that still doesn't help anything right The point of the gospel is not that we fix it. It's that we can't, but there's someone who is. And I struggle with depression. I've been open about that. I have for several years. For a long time, I was angry at God. I was so angry because I, kind of, I had this relationship with him, but he hadn't fixed me yet. He hadn't made it go away. I still woke up some mornings, and I still wake up some mornings and I'm, it's not even that I question why I'm here. I'm just angry that I'm here. I don't know if any of you have been there, but I still wake up like that sometimes. It's terrible. It stinks. But one thing I've slowly come to realize is that the gospel is not that Jesus fixes my problems. The gospel is that even if I'm depressed until the day that I die, he is there with me and he's not going anywhere. But we try to fix other people's problems because we have this idea that that's what Jesus is supposed to do for us and it's not. He may fix your problems. He has the power to fix your problems. I may really wake up one day and I'm not depressed anymore and I never deal with it again in my life. That would be awesome. But if it doesn't happen and I'm depressed until the very moment I take my last breath, I know where Jesus is and I know he's not leaving. And that's the gospel. We should stop trying to fix people and pick people up, and we should just go to where they are. That's what they need. What they really need sometimes, honestly, is to hear the gospel. And the best way to do that sometimes is for us to shut up and get out of the way. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that even when you don't take our struggles away, 
even when we're going through the fire and we keep going through the fire and we just feel like it's not getting any better or maybe it's even getting worse, you're still there and you never leave. One day you will redeem us. You will restore us. We won't deal with sickness. We won't deal with anxiety and depression and all of these things that we deal with now. But Lord, even if it doesn't happen in this lifetime and we have to wait till the next, we know that you are always there with us. And so as we approach other people, believers and non-believers who are dealing with so many things in a hurting world, in a sinful world, teach us how to approach that properly. Teach us to not rely on ourselves to try to fix the situation, but to just cry with them or laugh with them, whatever they need, just be there for them. Because that's the gospel, Lord. Thank you so much for who you are, that you died for us. And as we go out this week, we pray that you will continue to speak to us through your word, through your world that you created. We